Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit, a podcast series that aims to take a closer look at the impact of the IT industry, both the good and the bad. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plow Networks, a managed IT services company based just outside Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Brian Link, EVP of Products and Services here at Plow, and I'll be your host for this series. I'll ask questions, and with the help of our guests, try to dig deep on some of the key challenges we all face dealing with IT. So with that, let's cut the shit and get started. On today's episode, I am pleased to have Greg Edwards as our guest. Greg is the founder and CEO of CryptoStopper, which despite the name, is not a cryptocurrency company. CryptoStopper is a software company that provides ransomware protection by automatically detecting and stopping ransomware attacks. Greg has deep roots in the IT service provider business, having started a managed IT services company back in the 90s. Since then, he has started two companies based on technologies built to solve the IT problems of the companies he was serving. During our discussion, we dive into the world of ransomware and why it seems to be getting worse. He shares his perspective on how we got here, why the maturity of the ransomware business is so important, and what we can expect in the next two to three years. Finally, before we wrap up, we get to hear a little about his side hobby, building planes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Edwards. Greg, welcome to Cut the Shit. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Brian. Excellent, excellent. So tell us, it looks like you're in your home office. Tell us where you are today. So I am based uh, just north of Iowa City, Iowa. I live on a little 60-acre farm kind of out here in the middle of nowhere. Excellent. And your company is based close by, I understand, but you guys are not. um, Tell us about your workforce. Are you guys hybrid, remote? Is everybody in one place? What's the story? Yeah. So we went to a hybrid model in 2017. And so we've been doing remote and some office. And then since the pandemic actually have gone completely remote. So we're now 100% remote. So the move in 2017, was that done for recruiting purposes? What what was the logic of the move in 2017? So we used to do exercises where we would test our disaster recovery plan, and we would do that for one week. We'd send everybody home and work remotely for one week every year. And in, probably in 2015 and then 2016, everyone really liked that. <laughs> and so we said, well, why, you know, we don't need to keep adding to our office space, let's give people the ability to completely work remotely. And then that's when we went to the hybrid model uh, was after that. Got it. So it made it real easy when the pandemic hit. Yeah. Yeah. Because everyone already had full capabilities to work from home. And this was just, okay, now nobody goes to the office at all. Right. Right. Didn't have to. So, you know, just made that transition pretty seamless. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, how many folks do you have at CryptoStopper? Uh, so 12. Okay. And one of the things that I always like to ask, if we talk to companies that are purely remote, what are you guys doing about getting people together face-to-face now? Is that something you're trying to do at all or how are you handling that? Yeah. So we do quarterly meetings where we do get together face-to-face, but that's not, that's not all hands. Uh, and then- I assume that's people local? Uh, no, we actually travel for that. So we'll pick a location gotcha. and have an executive leadership team meeting um, offsite. But then for the the face-to-face and the regular 
we, we do an all hands meeting every other Monday and have everyone on do do an update of what's happening within the company and then um, do an ask me anything session that is primarily directed at me, but then others can ask anything that they want at that time. Right. Uh, and that's Zoom because you've got folks, I assume, here and there and everywhere. Yep. Yep. All it feels like all Zoom all the time. Understood. Understood. All right. Well, let's um, let's kind of jump into it. Why don't you give us um, a thumbnail sketch on your background and sort of how you got started in technology? Yeah. So I've been in technology. Um, actually, my first job was in technology and then have stayed in technology ever since. I started uh, managed services practice back in 1998, uh, and I still own and run that company today. And then I've started uh, two SaaS businesses out of that MSP business, one being an offsite backup and disaster recovery company. Uh, I sold that to publicly traded company in 2016 and then started Crypto Stopper after that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you mentioned technology being, you know, sort of your early start kind of guiding, you know, getting in on the ground floor, so to speak. What was your first technology job? Uh, so my very first technology job was at a company called Applied Systems that uh, was a tech support job. So <laughs> working in working in tech support, supporting an insurance application that at the time about 75% of independent insurance agencies used. Gotcha. I remember I worked at an independent insurance agency once upon a time, and I remember there were these forms. I want to say they were Accord or Accord, Accord or form. something like yep. that. Is that right? Yep. Was that a competitor or was that just something different? That actually was integrated into the software. So you could fill out your Accord forms Got on it. the okay. system. All right. It makes sense. Yeah, that was, I was, that was mid nineties. So that was a while ago. Um, yep. <laughs> that was early, early on in the uh, move to uh, all computerized insurance systems, which seems like mid nineties, like they should have been there way before that, but. Yeah, I mean, I guess I mean you could probably ask that question about a lot of <laughs> about a lot of late uh, late adopters to technologies, um, particularly insurance, though, because I guess you know it seems like one that was it, and is tailor made for uh, for technology for computers, if you will. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um. So why don't you let's back up, take one step, well, a couple steps back. Um, tell us about the MSP that you started and 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 why you started that. Well, so I started it actually when I was leaving the insurance software company. I was talking with technicians that didn't understand how to configure the systems to make the insurance software work well. Right. And so it it was a natural move to go and support um, throughout the state of Iowa a, a big portion of the independent insurance agencies and that was that was the vertical that I started out and I was 24 years old had no idea what I was doing as a business owner but figured it out as I went um, and back then it was all all break fix so it was all the number of hours that we build and that's that's how we made money gotcha gotcha all right um, and then the backup business I assume sprung from the MSP yeah, so in so we started doing offsite tape. We were we were doing what um, Iron Mountain ended up doing, and we were keeping the tapes for our clients, and then actually built systems so that we could recover their office 
at our office location, uh, which sounds archaic at this point. But but then we had this idea of, hey, let's use the distributed computing systems that we have and build our own data center and do the backups online, which at the time, you know, around 2002, that was a pretty novel sure. idea. Uh, and then actually launched that as a separate business in 2007, still even before the cloud was the cloud. Right. Uh, and grew that, grew that into a really nice national size business where we still focused on insurance agencies, but grew that nationally. Uh, and we're doing offsite backup. And really that's where I started seeing the rise of the ransomware attacks and part of the reason for selling that business and focusing on cybersecurity. Got it. Well, that was one of the things I did want to ask you is what was the motivation for the start? And I assumed it sprung again from a problem that you were seeing in the MSP service business. It, exactly. So ransom, I started seeing ransomware attacks as far back as 2012. Um, and really the thing that that made me decide to focus on cybersecurity in general were the calls that we would get from non-backup clients. So people would find us online and we 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 would write articles about recovering from ransomware. Um, and so people would just find us and call us. And I remember specifically um, having a gentleman call. I had actually taken the emergency support over a Thanksgiving holiday for the team so everybody else could take take the time off and I, and I worked which we do as business owners yep. uh and so a gentleman called and nearly in tears i mean this was a sounded like late 50s early 60s gentleman and he was about in tears over this ransomware attack that he wasn't sure if how he was going to keep his business up and going and he wasn't a client so we didn't have good backups he didn't know if he had good backups right it, that was a specific event that i recall and even when we had good backups so we could recover our um cloud cloud backup clients we could have them back up and running in our environment in about two hours which you know 10 years ago that was pretty amazing sure um but even that was hugely disruptive. And so having a backup be that last line of defense just wasn't wasn't good enough. And so that's where we eventually built CryptoStopper to be that last line of defense so you didn't have to rely on backup. Well, let's talk about that because you, you, you said something that I think I'm not sure a lot of people really understand non-technology people understand. I think a lot of people probably think ransomware is very new because it seems so much more prevalent now. And I don't know if that's because of news coverage, which I think is part of it, but I've talked to the insurance guys and there definitely are more, there've been more incidences. And so I'm curious to know your perspective on why do you think that's happened, particularly in the last couple of years? Is that mostly because of COVID or is there some other factor? Are there other factors involved? So the I think the primary factor is that these attackers are just now getting good at their craft. So if you look back at the evolution of hackers, and most people think of a hacker as you know, some young guy, typically male, right, um, in their mom's basement hacking away, and that is not that's not the attackers that we're dealing with today. So 
Bitcoin was introduced uh, and became prevalent in 2012. And that's really when yeah. the first ransomware attack started hitting. It made payment, it made anonymous payment possible in a way that had never been before. Exactly. And so that gave rise then to the cybersecurity nightmare that we have today was these attackers being able to get paid anonymously and from anywhere in the world. And and so it's just evolved. I mean, they're, they're now, these hackers are really organized businesses. I mean, it's organized crime is what it is. Sure. Uh, and they run them as businesses. And that evolution has just taken time and they're just now getting good at what they do. And when you say getting good, get, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So from the standpoint of operating and running a business, they're perfecting their craft now. And prior to that, it was much more of individuals that were just good hackers. And now when once you've introduced that monetary gain to the equation, now it's something that people strive to become. And especially when you take into account that in Russia, it is not illegal for a Russian citizen to attack any business in the world as long as they're not within Russia. So it's a hundred percent legal. And why wouldn't I mean, as, as right. a young, um, young technologist coming up, if they see that they could make millions of dollars doing something that's completely illegal, stealing money from enemies of Russia, then why not? Right. So right. there's no ethical dilemma. And it's yeah. So so I think that the, the problems that we have now all stem from the fact that cryptocurrency became available in the around the 2012 time frame and they're they're just now getting really good at what they do got it so you, you see it less as a function of the move home or remote work and more a function of uh, i'll call it market dynamics maybe that's not the right way to think about it but it kind of is uh it technology advance in the sense of crypto um right i mean the the pandemic exacerbated it for sure um but it was coming whether the pandemic happened or not. Well, and, and I've had this discussion with folks on this front, and I guess I'd ask you this question, and maybe it'll verify or, or refute the, the thesis, but how much ransomware isn't email-based at this point? Um, so about 50%. It's okay, about an even split now. Between email and? And other methods. Of others. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the next most common would be um, remote. So they, they gain access remotely and. Right, right. So that's, yeah, okay. And then, and then texting and voice phishing, uh, I know we've got, is another. Supply chain. Vector. Right. So where, where they infect, like the SolarWinds event, yeah. where they infect known good software and deploy right. it that way. The reason I, the reason I asked the question is because, so we'll take three of those vectors, email, text and phone all have existed long before remote work became a real, you know, those were all, those were all available 10 years ago. Right. I mean, right. It, you know, as possible options for, for, um, you know, in making it, being able to gain access to something to allow ransomware to, to get installed. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, 
since you've had a bunch of experiences with this and your company is on the front lines, can you can you share some specific some specific examples of successful ransomware attacks that were novel or interesting or something about them that you think is worth uh, others knowing about in, in terms of their their characteristics? Yeah, so just dealt with one um, where they the attackers encrypted, and this was a non crypto stopper client, but I I get. Because I'm on podcasts like this, I get lots of requests for, hey, can you help help direct on on a recovery? And in this particular instance, it was 11 servers that the VMware host, and then I'll I know there's non-technical people listening. So essentially, the entire server session was encrypted rather than encrypting the individual files it encrypted the entire server sessions for this company of 620 employees and shut them down completely and so that that's the first time where i saw that it was encrypting the entire vmware host and at that level rather than the files themselves rather than the individual files themselves so that that was Definitely. Uh, <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What, what was the remediation option under those circumstances, under those circumstances? Yeah. So recovering from backups, but they also encrypted the local backups. So luckily this company had offsite images of their servers. And so they could recover from. Them. So they rolled back behind. They, they were able to roll back behind. Yep. Yep. Interesting. You know, we, we, Backups are are obviously part of, and we'll get into this. But backups are part of the tool, you know, one of the tools in the toolkit, so to speak. Um, but it's it, it it doesn't mean it's not a. Um, if you have to backup, if you have to use backups, well, there's by definition a loss, right? It's a question of how much, depending on your, you know, depending on how you've got your backup system structured and the time between backups and that sort of thing. Um, given your given your background in the backup business and moving here. How are you seeing, are there any changes happening on the backup front that you think are um, helpful in terms of what we're dealing with? Or is it just, it is what it is as it's important and helpful, but it's after the fact. And so you're going to have some collateral damage. It's multifold, but I would say that the backups certainly have improved and the ability to have a backup that is on-site and off-site is critical and i think backing up those entire server images and the ability to roll that forward and bring it back up that way the thing that has improved is the protection around those backups so the backup companies have recognized okay these attackers are going to come after not only the data but all of the the backups. backups sure and so that protection of the backups is is really important so things like air gaps and some stuff that's happening like that 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 again five when i was a cio 2015 air gap wasn't an expression that i ever heard um that we didn't that, exactly exactly it didn't it did, you know it was a it was a new term when i you know when i kind of came back to the space a few years ago yeah yeah so that that really has improved in the backup space in recent years um but like you mentioned earlier it's still 
a loss. I mean, you're still, if you have an entire company taken down and you're recovering from backups because of a ransomware attack, that's a failure in my opinion. Right. So, so you, you mentioned that as a, a problem that CryptoStopper was trying to solve. So tell us a little bit about CryptoStopper and what's the, pr what's the premise of the company and the particular product or service or services that you guys are offering today? Yeah. So CryptoStopper, what it does is it actually recognizes a ransomware attack actively running. So whether that's file exfiltration or file encrypting, it'll recognize that and then it'll stop the process that's running it uh, and then isolate that device from the rest of the network so that it can't spread. And so when you think about it in those terms of it's detecting a an actively running ransomware, then that means it got that ransomware attack got past all of the other protections. Right. And now if CryptoStopper wasn't there, it's going to run until it encrypts everything. And then you're looking at backups and right, right. hoping you have good backups. And so the premise is that we want to stop that attack very quickly. And our algorithm will detect and stop an attack in less than a second. And so typically four to five files will be encrypted before we recognize it. So you're still, I mean, backup is still important in this because sure. you still need to recover those four or five files, but you're not talking entire system down. It's not a pure prevention strategy, but it's, it's a, it's a heavy duty um, intervention system. Damage. It's a damage control. And, and I would assume it's installed uh, locally. Again, I, I don't know a lot about it because I, um, I haven't, I've been in Italy for a week and didn't do my research, frankly. I'll just to be, be honest with you because I would, I would have already known this. But my assumption is this is sort of the, the same way AV software works in the sense of, of the locality. It's, it's, it's on the device itself. Right. Correct. Yep. It's an agent that's installed on desktops, laptops, and servers, and then it's watching for right. okay. those actions of ransomware. So it's an installed agent that monitors, right? And is looking for certain kinds of behaviors. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Excellent. Um, well, that's, that's exciting. That's, um, how's, how is business going so far? Really well. So we sell exclusively through managed service providers. Um, and we have uh, just crossed the 100 MSP threshold and just actually just started. Uh, we just took this to market in April of last year. Good. Wow. That's that's good growth. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Let's let's transition just a bit. We've kind of talked specifically about ransomware, maybe a few or a couple of examples of what they, you know, how they sort of work. Let's take one step up um, and talk a little bit about sort of the, at the meta level, as we think about the idea of, of layered security or zero trust approaches in terms of security posture. Um, it's something we talk to our customers about and are, are, are leveraging for ourselves as we think about our own security posture at Plow. What's your take on zero trust as sort of a philosophical underpinning for how to be smart about security and how to how has that evolved from again you've been around this game for a while how have you seen that evolve over time So I mean I I love the concept of zero trust and getting to that point the problem is getting clients getting your customers to that level it's it's very very difficult to get to a pure zero trust sure. stance. Um, so 
I love the concept of it. I think ultimately we're working toward that direction. Um, and I think we'll need to get there. I think right now the realistic view is layered security. So having the right tools in place and having the right backups in place to be able to recover as we're moving toward that zero trust posture. Yeah, we always think of the way I generally describe it to people is I say zero trust is, I won't say it's unobtainable, but it's more of a, it's more of an aspiration than anything else. Like, you know, there's a, to get there, you've got to follow a, a crawl, walk, run, marathon, you know, maybe, I don't even know where you go beyond run. Cause it's not just running to say you really are zero trust and implicit in it is, uh, you know, the assumption that you are going to get breached, right? So by definition within the context or construct of zero trust is the assumption that, that you're not 100% secure right there, because there is, there really is no such thing, at least today, you know, maybe we can get some sort of vaccine that we can all be vaccinated from, uh, from, from security breaches, but no, you know, no one has figured that out yet. So. Right. Right. Yeah. I am in a hundred percent agreement with you on the, the fact that it's, it's not unobtainable. It definitely can be done, but most companies can't operate at least not yet. And, and again, it's, it's a process of getting there, not something you turn on tomorrow. Yeah. And the overhead and expenses is real. I mean, it's not, um, you know, this is, we, the, this not, Hey, spend a couple of bucks a user and you're all set. Right. And no one will know. I mean, there's, there's things that can happen behind the scenes that they don't know about, but there's also real, um, you know, I use the word overhead, meaning there's real overhead for the user in terms of how they interact with their machines how they interact with the network, that sort of thing that they've got to deal with. You know? Well, and you think about just this, what I consider the simplest of things, turning on multi-factor authentication. Like that should be across the board, just done, right? And companies will, will push back and complain about having to do that. Sure, because their employees will complain. Right. <laughs> you know, and if they've got, if they don't have outsourced, uh, an outsourced help desk, their internal IT support people will get swamped with, with angry employees who can't get access to their, you know, computers. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. And so those, I mean, that, that shift in, in mentality has to come from the top down. So when, when companies, and especially if it's an IT department or an outsourced IT managed service provider, you've got to get that executive level buy-in and have that executive level buy-in push down through the rest of the organization rather than IT trying to push it up. 100% agree. And, and, you know, that's a variation on a theme when it comes to internal IT, right? I mean, if anytime that it's, it's seen as um, standalone or something IT is doing something to us as the business, you're, you're lost, right? I mean, it's a, it's that, that'll put you at the bar drinking beer as the IT director frustrated because you can't get anything done. I mean, it really is right. If you can't find a way to connect what you do to helping the business be successful, whether that's grow revenue or in this case, protect us from, you know, <laughs> Uh, the end or, uh, you know, uh, sort of a existential threats, um, then, then, then that that's, I mean, that's part of the challenge, right? 
Right, right. Well, and I have seen in the last in the last 18 months, I've definitely seen a shift in the CEO level and executive management level of embracing security. They don't necessarily know what it is or what needs to be done. They just know something needs to be done. Sure. They don't want to be in the papers. They don't want to deal with the financial, you know, the financial fallout from a, you know, from a major security event. Um, they want to be able to get their cybersecurity insurance policies renewed, which is, I don't know what you guys are seeing, but that we're seeing a ton of turmoil in that particular area right now with, with clients. I'm assuming you're seeing some of the same. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's because the cyber liability insurance companies have finally recognized how to define the risk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they realized they were way underpricing it before. <laughs> right. And when you ask the right questions to ensure that a company is secured, then it, it changes things. Sure. Sure. And, and, you know, we've, um, we've had some conversations with, uh, independent insurance agents and with, with the carriers themselves. Um, and it's interesting how few people inside those organizations really had an understanding of what, uh, the risk itself was when it came to what, you know, what they were, what they were covering. Right. I mean, not that an agent, it's not an agent's job to necessarily understand, you know, at, at a deep level, what the, the, the risk itself would be, but they do need to know enough to say, Hey, look, just because you have insurance, if nothing else, there's a deductible associated with that. And if you get, if you get a, if you have a, if you have a loss, you're, you're looking at real cost here associated with, um, with the event. And so let's do everything we can to make sure that's not the case other than spend, you know, you don't want to spend more money than it's going to take you to, to, to get the insurance. But outside of that, you know, I've, we've had a couple of clients who were like, we can't afford to have cybersecurity insurance anymore. And I said, well, you got to understand then you're self-insuring, right? So you, you have two choices under those, under that set of circumstances. You can try to lay off some of that risk or not, but it doesn't change the risk itself. It's still there, right? What could happen could still happen, whether you have cyber insurance, cybersecurity insurance or not. <laughs> and that's been not a, not a fun conversation for them, but it, it, it is what it is, you know? Well, and they should take that to heart of, if, if the risk is that high, then they should be doing something. Right. 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 I mean, it, it, if those premiums are that high, then. Yeah. It's a definite market signal that, I mean, if nothing else, for those of us in the MSP world, right. It's supportive of, of the message that we're trying to preach around this, or again, around a layered security model or, or a zero trust aspiration model, right? Because it points out, look, this is how expensive it is. If you don't, do these kinds of things if you don't mitigate that risk. Right. Yeah. I mean, the average ransomware attack uh, is a $2.1 million event now. I mean, yeah, you're, you know, you're talking about, you know, you know, seven, seven digits moving towards eight. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's real money. Right. And, and the, again, the customers that we're seeing get attacked and have had issues. These are not, particularly large companies in all instances, right? These are now, you know, companies with 100, 200, 500 employees. So good, you know, solid mid-sized companies, but they're not big public companies, right? These are smaller companies. Point being, to your point around the business model evolving, the the organized criminals uh, in this space 
I figured out there's money to be made from these smaller companies as well. Absolutely. Well, and when you look at it from the model of of what the attackers are going to go after, they're going to go after the easiest prey. And larger companies have been shoring up their cybersecurity over the last several years. So the, so the target breach really was the first breach that made big national news and that was 2014 right and so every fortune 500 company after that happened said wow we have to take this seriously and shore up our systems and so started with the fortune 500 the fortune 5000 and now those companies are much harder to break into so where are they going to go it's the old, you know, how do you, you, when, you know, if you and your buddy are camping and a bear comes into the, uh, into the campsite and you start running and the a buddy says, you know, why are you running? You can't outrun the bear. And he says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. You know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. It's definitely the case. Well, I've taken up a good bit of your time. I'll kind of try to wrap you up here with a couple of questions. Um, Crypto crypto stoppers fairly new, not not that new, but fairly new. What do you kind of what what sort of where are you where's your head in terms of aspirations? What do you hope people are going to say about crypto stopper in two, three, five years? Um, I hope that people say, "Why wasn't this invented sooner?" <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be a great testament, right? <laughs> I do hear that some now. It would be nice. Uh, I, I really think this technology needs to be ubiquitous. Where we're watching at the data level for the attack behavior. I did want to ask a question and I, did, I thought about that for just a second. What's the potential for false positives or how do you, how does the algorithm, is it, is it that distinctive? Is the footprint distinctive enough where you don't have a concern about legitimate activity being flagged? Yeah. So we do have some false positives and we have over the, um, so the product has been in production and use a little over a year, but we had built it and had been using it within our own MSP for several years before that. Uh, and so we've, we've taken care of the vast majority of those false positives, but we still get a few false sure. positives and we okay. have the ability to whitelist uh, individual folders and then also in whitelist processes, which we don't like to whitelist processes because you could have an attack that right. utilized. That. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 That's a honeypot at that point. Right. If it's, if it's a whitelisted process. Exactly. All right. Final question. So, you know, you're in the space uh, around cybersecurity. When you think about everything that's going on and what's been happening, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the future going forward? And, and when I say future, I don't mean 10 years from now, what I'm in the ne next year to three fair near, near term. So, so I'm an optimistic person by nature, and so I'm very optimistic about the future. I am also very optimistic that cyber attacks are going to increase over the next. So you think it's going to get worse before it gets better in, in that front? Yeah, I definitely feel that from a cyber attack standpoint, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I don't know where I, I have said since about 2016, 2017 timeframe that I thought 2024 would be the peak of the cyber attacks um, and that's based on you know 10 to 12 years of these attackers really learning and perfecting their their craft and so i think at that point 
and the cybersecurity tools are getting much better. Um, so I think around 2024 still is where that that peak and then we'll be at a plateau for a while before it starts to tail off. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so we'll, I always like to wrap up with a few kind of personal questions uh, that, I mean, personal, this is not Oprah. I don't mean that kind of personal questions, but you know, I know that, uh, I understand at least that you're mechanically inclined. So maybe you can tell us a little something that, that you've been working on non it kind of outside of, uh, outside of the office, so to speak. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a private pilot and I have a plane that a buddy of mine and I built together. Uh, it's a two passenger Lance air and, uh, we recently upgraded the avionics suite in it. And so we have all touch panel, uh, what they call glass cockpit in it now. And I'm working on getting my instrument rating in that so that I can go and, and fly in the clouds. How did you get interested in aviation? Has that been a lifelong passion or is that something fairly new? Yeah, so it was a lifelong passion um, and something that I always wanted to do and started um, started working on my pilot's license actually in 2000. And then I was actually flying um, on 9-11, 2001, when the, when the towers were attacked. And we were practicing uh, uh, avionics out, so no no audio communication, had our radios off and had no idea what was happening until we came back and landed. Wow. Wow. So you, you'll remember that day. I mean, for lots of different reasons. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question. Um, tell us about your first technology memory as a child and it can't be TV. <laughs> well, so I had an Apple two E as a fourth grader. And um, wrote, started writing in BASIC, which is a, a yep. programming language. Uh, Commodore 64 for me. Uh, I didn't have one, but my buddy did. Um, and we got these books that you could have the programs where you could go write them and the screen would draw pictures or make a little, you know, we thought it was the coolest thing we'd ever seen. Yeah. I mean, it's spending hours and hours um, writing these programs back then. Yeah. So that, that's my earliest memory was from fourth grade. Got it. And you kind of stuck with it all the way through in terms of technology. I have. Yep. I've been a, a geek from, from way back. <laughs> well, Greg, um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, good luck with, uh, with the company. I'm excited about what you guys are doing. You're doing good work. Um, definitely needed. Uh, and um, I hope our paths cross again in the near future. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that would really help us out. Or you can just go old school and tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, and hell, anybody else who you think might want to hear something like this to listen in. If you're on social media, make sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at cuttheshit underscore pod. We are also on TikTok, at CutTheShitPod, all one word, where we post lots of clips from the podcast. And last but not least, you can also watch the YouTube version of the show on our YouTube channel, at Plow Networks. Until next time, take care and have a great day. <laughs>